This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Bookburners, an urban fantasy for fans of Dresden Files and the X-Files. Bookburners is a production of Serial Box, which brings you serialized fiction from teams of today's best writers. To get a discount on the first season of any Serial Box series, visit SerialBox.com and use the promo code GEEK18. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 292 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new science fiction anthology show, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, which is available now on Amazon Prime. And this will include spoilers for the first 10 episodes of the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited many other books, including the dystopian anthology Brave New Worlds and the anthology of video game theme stories Press Start to Play. So, John, welcome back. Always good to be here, if indeed I am here and am <laughs> not just a duplicate of uh, some sort of alien variety. <laughs> The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner making her fifth appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and crafts laser-cut jewelry and soap with swear words inside. She lives in Northern mm-hmm. California with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Always happy to be here. And also joining us today is Anthony Ha, who's also making his fifth appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and he taught a class on Philip K. Dick as a student at Stanford. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And today's show is brought to you by Bookburners, about a team of secret agents that hunts down dangerous books containing deadly magic. Bookburners is a production of Serial Box, a new company that brings you serialized fiction from teams of today's best writers. The team behind Bookburners includes Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Brian Francis Slattery, Andrea Phillips, and Mer Lafferty, who was our guest back in episode 86. And here's a description of the book. It says, Magic is real and hungry. It's trapped in ancient texts and artifacts, and only a few who discover it survive to fight back. Detective Sal Brooks is a survivor. She joins a Vatican-backed Black Ops anti-magic squad, Team 3 of the Societas Librorum Occultorum, and together they stand between humanity and the magical apocalypse. Some call them the book burners. They don't like the label. It's supernatural meets the Da Vinci Code in this fast-paced, kick-ass, character-driven novel chock-full of magic, mystery, and mayhem. Tor.com calls book burners brisk and hugely entertaining. Its breakneck pace never feels rushed, and its balance between the horrifyingly demonic and the hilariously clever never falters. And Publishers Weekly writes that it's as much fun as binge-watching a full season of a Showtime series. So, if that sounds like your sort of thing, you can join the plot with Serial Box right now. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listeners can get a discount on the first season of any Serial Box series by going to SerialBox.com and entering the promo code GEEK18. So that's S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X dot com, and the code is GEEK18. The first episode of Book Burners is also available as a free podcast on the Serial Box podcast, narrated by X.E. Sands. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, and so I mentioned in the intro there that Anthony taught a class on Philip K. Dick, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about that class? 
Um, it was a student-initiated course, uh, and um, I actually taught it with someone, a writer who may be familiar to some of your listeners, uh, Alice Ola Kim. Oh. Uh, we're both like huge Philip K. Dick fans. And um, I, I think one of the things that's worth noting, though, is that basically we handed out a few short stories, I think, at the first session, but the whole rest of the class was just focused on reading his novels because, I mean, I think with, with really a handful of exceptions, I think he's, a, you know, the novels which tended to come later in his career, I think, are much stronger than the short stories, which tend to have kind of interesting, an interesting premise, but aren't necessarily great pieces of writing. Well, a lot, a lot of the novels, he just kind of took three short stories and jammed them all together. So if you read the novels, <laughs> you're, you're getting a lot of the short stories, too. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and so how did the class go? Like, how did, how did students today respond to Philip K. Dick? Uh, well, it, it pains me to admit this, but I, I don't think this is necessarily a reflection of students today because this is more than a decade ago now. Um, but it was, I, I think, you know, there's a, a sort of, you know, there's certain things that haven't dated that well. Certainly, I mean, I think the, the way that um, Dick writes about women is, is generally not great. And, and, yeah. has, and I think there's a lot of discussion about that, and I think justifiably so. Um, and, and I think there, there are obviously novels that, that are you know, very clearly written in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and, and so it's not like they, they don't feel contemporary in the sense that, you know, that, that, that it, they could be written today. But I, at the same time, I think a lot of people still got a, a, a lot, you know, a lot, a lot out of the books. And, and there certainly seemed to be enough that, like, we could discuss a book a week and, and have plenty to talk about. Yeah, I've always kind of said that Philip K. Dick's female characters are, are either the hot secretary or the nagging wife, uh, yeah. with very few exceptions. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, I think in, in general, he has a, sort of a few stock types. Um, I think the, the stock types that he has on the, on the female side are a little bit more offensive. Um, he, they can be deployed, you know, effectively. Like there's sort of like the kind of tired, um, aggrieved every man who, who he trots out in, in every book and every short story. And I think it works pretty well. Some of his, the, the female stereotypes that he relies on, not so great. It's kind of interesting, actually, uh, speaking of his novels and his, the comparison of his novels and short stories. I, I, I thought it was interesting, just especially watching this show, that like all of these episodes are based on short stories, which, as you might imagine, for, for television, that makes more sense than adapting novels. But um, just in terms of the overall number of Philip K. Dick adaptations, it seems like the majority of them actually have been based on his short stories. I mean, you have um, Blade Runner was based on a novel and um, Man in the High Castle was based on a novel. But, I mean, most of the other Philip K. Dick adaptations I can think of were all actually based on his other short stories, uh, which seems kind of interesting, uh, especially given what Anthony's saying. Yeah, well, Scanner Darkly is a novel. Oh, yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, I forgot about that one. But, yeah, and I mean, he has so many things. And so many things have been adapted at this point, it's hard to mm -hmm. think of them all off the top of your head. But mm -hmm. um, I guess let's just get into this. Um, so, John, what did you think of this uh, this new show overall? Uh, well, I hate to be a downer, but I mean, I was, uh, I was fairly disappointed overall. Um, I enjoyed a couple of the episodes, but I would say like at least for me, half, at least half of them are just like I thought bad, uh, including three that I thought were really, really bad and two that were just like pretty bad. Um, and then of the remaining five, there were two that I really liked and then, there was one that I thought was pretty good, and then another that was a little bit, you know, just, like, kind of okay. And then one that was, like, interesting, but, like, had a lot of problems with execution and overall made it unenjoyable to me. So, 
you know, I, I'm pretty mixed on it, or I mean, I guess I'm pretty negative on it overall. But <laughs> the, the 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 two that I liked, I really liked, and and you know, the stuff that it's doing well, I think it does well. Um, I even though I didn't particularly enjoy, like you know, like I said, more than half the ep- more than half the episodes. Um, I. It wasn't that I didn't enjoy the enjoyed the experience of watching them. It's just that overall, my my um, overall uh, sort of opinion of the show uh, of the episodes were just like not great, you know. And 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 although the ones that I thought were terrible were that was a little bit different. Like Crazy Diamond, I I just I was like just so confused by it. It's like <laughs> what what? It's like wait, that's the end? What? Explain anything? You know, it's just uh, uh, although actually Impossible Planet also made me furious because I, I just didn't understand anything that happened at the end. Um, Although that was one that I actually read the story and I was like, well, I'm glad they didn't end it the way the story ends because the ending of the story was like totally stupid. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, so that's what my overall opinion is, but yeah, I'm sure we'll talk more about details. Yeah. Well, I, I think John, I'm more positive on the show than you are, but I definitely, I thought the episodes were of mixed quality for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this show, it reminded me a lot of watching the outer limits revival back in the nineties. It has kind of the same production value slash aesthetic sort of as that one. And I think that it, um, you know, does, doesn't measure up. And I, I mean, I love this is like all I want to watch is I want to turn on TV and watch antho- science fiction anthology shows all day <laughs> yeah. long on every channel. <laughs> so at, at that level, I loved I loved that they made this and I would happily mm-hmm. watch another hundred episodes of it. Um, yeah. But it is sort of of mixed quality, I thought, and doesn't really, to my mind, measure up to Black Mirror and other kind of mm-hmm. contemporary shows. But um, Sarah, what do you think? About, what do you think about that? I thought it was great. I uh, I definitely there were a few episodes that were sort of cringeworthy. Um, and I definitely agree that there are some faults in there. Um, but I think I have more of a positive attitude in part because the casting and, you know, the retelling of like, as a female science fiction fan, it's very, very hard. You have to kind of, you know, when you're reading Philip K. Dick, you have to kind of put a filter on and realize, okay, this is going to piss me off and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and just kind of, you know, read it knowing it is what it is. It's got faults. And, and so being able to finally fully enjoy, um, PKD and, and, you know, not have to worry about that and not have to turn that part of me off before reading it is really a pleasure. And so just, you know, as, as simple, uh, as, you know, certain stories were, just being able to see um, that every man being turned into an every woman um, isn't something that we, you know, we still struggle with representation, obviously, in, in television and movies. And so, you know, being able to see that um, was a great pleasure for me as a female, you know, science fiction fan. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because I watched the, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I read, I've read every Philip K. Dick story, but I read them all in high school and college. So I didn't, I don't remember all of them that well. So I watched these episodes and I went back and reread the stories that they're based on. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing that strikes you if you go in reverse order like that is how all the people of color and strong female characters and even just p- characters with interesting names all sort of disappear, you know, in mm-hmm. the fiction. It's all Anderson and Smith mm-hmm. and Jones yeah. and, and so on. <laughs> Um, but so, so Anthony, what do you think about, do you, do you feel, do you agree with Sarah that this show kind of redeems that aspect of Philip K. Dick? Yeah. I mean, I think that in general, it, it seems like, but and uh, and updating in a number of ways and, and perhaps that's the most important and, and valuable one is, is just, um, that, you know, seeing a broader, you know, I think treating women, given, giving the women more interesting roles and, um, you know, in general, you know, just creating something that's more representative of, you know, the demographics of 
the you know 21st century America, I think is is great. Um, I think also, I mean, a lot of the technology, a lot of the conceits have been updated in in fairly interesting ways. I think I, I will agree that one of the things that I was really surprised by was you know at least I think the order it might be different in different countries, but um, the first episode on Amazon in the U.S. was gosh, what was it called? Real life, um, real life yeah. Um, which also just a very generic title. Uh, that was the one I think that was written by Ron Moore. And I thought it was like hands down the worst episode of the, of this, of the season. And I just thought it was like, I mean, not like worst bad in every way. But, <laughs> yeah. I'm oh, going to, I'm, I'm going to have to agree crazy with John. The crazy dive is worse than Nothing's worse life. than crazy dive. <laughs> <laughs> I loved crazy dive. Okay. We're gonna, <laughs> I, I texted like people to, about how much I loved it and they watched it and they, well, anyway, we can get into that. Um, not that I have to rely on, you know, Friends who I can't, you know, dial on this uh, podcast. But uh, time, I would say Crazy Diamond is actually probably my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought real life, I mean, just felt very perfunctory in every way. Like, it was just kind of like, and then I thought, you know, I would agree that most of the episodes aren't home runs. Like, they feel like they've, they've got this basic conceit and they sort of execute on them pretty well. And they sort of rely on, I think a lot of it is just sort of the performances and the sympathy that you probably have for seeing a lot of, you know, fairly familiar faces from TV and film. Um, but I thought like just the, the range of different kinds of stories as well, I really liked. So, I mean, I don't think it's, it's an unequivocal success, but I think overall I, I was pretty happy with it. Well, when you mentioned Crazy Diamond and Real Life, one of the things I want to talk about is how both of those episodes are based on Philip K. Dick's stories. And the episodes bear basically no similarity <laughs> mm-hmm. to the story whatsoever. Uh, yeah. Maybe like the vaguest thematic similarity or something like that. Right. And then that sort of irritated me that it's called Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. And then four of the episodes are basically original stories that aren't really based on a Philip K. Dick, Philip K. Dick's work at all, except maybe in a spiritual way or something. Um, but maybe I'm, I'm more like persnickety about <laughs> that or something. But um, yeah. uh, John, John, do you, you agree with that? Oh, yeah, no, so it's funny, uh, so I hadn't read most of these stories, or I don't think I've read any of these stories before this, um, but I, I started off thinking, like, oh, like, I'm gonna try to read all the stories beforehand, there's only ten, but it's like, I, I started to read them, and I wasn't really enjoying them, and it's like, I, I got too much other stuff to read, I, I, so I was like, I just abandoned that, but, but the, the story real life is theoretically based on the exhibit piece, uh, is one that I read, and I, when I realized, like, how are they gonna adapt this? Like, what, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is a pretty bad story, um, and in general, I feel like they're kind of scraping the bottom of the back of Philip K. Dick material for this show, really. I mean, it's like, these are... None of these stories are, like, his most notable stories. Uh, I mean... It, like, even if you look at where they were published, it's like there was one from FNSF and one from Galaxy and then one from Amazing and one from If. And then the other ones are all from, like, magazines. Like, I don't even know if I've even heard those names before. Uh, so those are, like, like hardcore pulp magazines, you know, that, like, never made much of an impact. Um... So, so you know, not to say that they couldn't publish good stories, but I mean, you know, this isn't the cream of the crop of Philip K. Dick material, I don't think. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, real life though, I was thinking like, it's like they really wanted to make something that was based on We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, but they couldn't get the rights to that. <laughs> so they're like, hey, exhibit piece, if we kind of squint at it a certain way and look at it in a certain light, we could kind of <laughs> tell a story along those lines and, and, so yeah, but it's like, it was a very strange adaptation. Um, in a lot of these cases though, I kind of feel like straying farther from the source material is maybe better just because like I didn't, I wasn't too impressed with most of the stories that I read. Um, or well, any of the ones that I read, I read four of them, but, um, you know, 
So, uh, I mean, the thing is, like, I've talked about moldy science fiction stories before, like these sort of old stories written in the 50s or whatever that just, like, are really hard to read as a modern reader. And I feel like all the ones that I read were like that. And these stories were all from the 50s. And I know that's going to really shock anybody who's seen this show that, like, oh, my goodness, these stories were written in the 50s? You don't say. Uh, especially, especially like, the father thing. It's like, oh, yeah, no, that was written in the 50s? Really? You're, you're kidding me. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, that's the... Well, well, no, I see, I agree with you, John, that a lot of the stories, they couldn't just adapt them the way they are because they wouldn't work in film. And a lot of that is that a lot of the Philip K. Dick stories are like nightmares. They're like, you know, yeah. they have sort of nightmare logic and film is a very literal me medium. And it's just very hard to just film it and have it like seem like a, like what, what what's going on. But just in print, in principle, you don't have any problem with them calling the show Philip K. Dick's <laughs> Electric Dreams when the story and saying like, this is based on this story when it like really isn't at all. Well, I mean, I'd rather I'd rather they actually adapted uh, better stories, and that that could actually be feasibly adapted uh, honestly, uh, rather than like something like real life, which, like you say, is basically just an original idea that has almost no relation to the story it's theoretically based on. I think that is bullshit. But um, <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm normally you know like I really want a, a, an adaptation to be faithful. It's just that like in these cases, I'm like, well, why'd they pick these stories though? I mean, it's like probably because those those are the ones they could get the rights to, but. Um, you know, so I don't know. It's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of, uh, uh, despair at the thought of what stories they're going to adapt in the next season. I mean, if these are the ones they picked this time. Well, well, Anthony, you were making this point to me in email, right? That you said, I taught a class on Philip K. Dick and I haven't heard of most of these stories. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, th I think that John is right that, I mean, I don't have any, know a ton about exactly what happened behind the scenes, but this feels to me like the Philip K. Dick estate. And, and I know that, um, his daughter is, is one of the executive producers, um, you know, I get the sense that they probably said, okay, here, are the novels, we still want to sell for a lot of money. Here are maybe like the top tier short stories, which I would say are like Faith of Our Fathers and The Electric Ant, maybe a few others. I, I don't, I mean, I think a handful. And then here are a bunch of others that we're probably not going to be able to sell. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we make a TV show? Yeah. And and that definitely kind of, you know, just looking at the list of stories, that's, that's kind of how it felt. Um and, and I don't disagree that, I mean, I think a lot of these adaptations are, I mean, it's like, hey, come up, read this story and come up with a story of your own that is tangentially related. I will say, like, the, the one that I, one episode I would point to is um, Safe and Sound, which is an adaptation of this story, Foster Your Dead, mm -hmm. which has almost zero plot mm -hmm. points in particular, but in some ways actually felt like a really interesting updating of the same idea. And so I think like there's a way to do it where you can still see that kind of like spiritual connection. Um, but like, I think I agree that in a lot of cases you, again, even just reading the description of the story, you're like, wow, how did they get from mm -hmm. A to B? Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't read the story that safe and sound is based on, but I thought that was the best episode. So. Well, yeah. And so the short story, it's about, it's, it's cold war paranoia and there's uh, like everybody in the neighborhood has a bomb shelter and there's one kid who doesn't have one because his dad's a sort of, you know, um, has like a original thinker or something, and and he's and the kid is just obsessed with bomb shelters. And I th I feel like when they were um, putting the show together, they probably looked at that and said, "Oh, this is so dated. Like, who cares about bomb shelters?" But now that Trump is president, like everything old is new again. I think they could have yeah, totally yeah. used that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, but uh, but but speaking of like you know just the 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 selection of these particular stories and further Anthony's point, it's like I mean. 
uh, I, I did a search on ISFDB, the inter- Internet Speculative Fiction Database, and, and just did a rough count. And it's like, you know, he's pu- he published in the neighborhood of 150 stories. So, I mean, there's a lot of stories that have never been adapted. Uh, I mean, maybe that maybe someone's sitting on the right somewhere for some of these other some some of the other more notable stories. But um, I'm just feeling like I don't know. Like, it seems very strange to me, like that they ended up with this batch. Well, and if you look at the dates, John, it was like a 100 of those stories were published between like 1952 and 1955 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like he was writing mm-hmm. like, you know, like 100 stories <laughs> In a, right. a handful of years or something. Um, right. Well, because he's he's like he's like a true pulp writer, right? He's trying to like live off of selling his stories, and so it's like he just had to like churn them out and send them out, and because like you know he can't wait for the for the good ones to come back, and like if, if the if the publisher doesn't buy it, so he can send wait and send it somewhere else. He he's got to fire it off to every publication that's in existence so that he can hope to get a couple paychecks coming in. Uh, so that's not really the best environment to produce like the top tier work, mm-hmm. <laughs> really. Well, and I think also like Philip K. Dick kind of like the, 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 st- the work that I think he's really remembered for, which is, has its own flaws, but I think really starts around like the early sixties with a man in the high castle. And that's really when he becomes the Philip K. Dick that, that is sort of beloved today. Um, and I think a lot of the short stories, including it sounds like all these stories come from when, yeah, again, he was just in that period where he's just churning stuff out. So in a lot of ways, I think it's not necessarily, you know, if, I think if you read these stories, you'd be like, why, um, you know, why is this the science fiction writer who, like, so many people sort of hold, you know, um, dear above all others? That seems crazy. See, Sarah, do you have any uh, any opinions on this show uh, sticking to the stories or not sticking to the stories? I think that, um, you know, I it doesn't really bother me because I feel like PKD is always going to be an inexhaustible source of story ideas, and they should you know, wildly vary from the original inspiration point. Um, and I feel like, you know, part of it is that we, all of us understand because we know that PKD invented a lot of what we see now as tropes. And so when we look back at the earliest, you know, examples of those things, they don't seem very sophisticated now to us because other things mm-hmm. have been done with that and that ball has been passed to multiple people who have done more interesting things with it and we're just kind of used to it. But at the time, I'm sure it was really mind-bending stuff. Um, and so I, I feel like, in, in a sense, you know, if I were going to adapt a, a, a PKD story, I would go as far left field as I could with it. So it doesn't really bother me and I like to, you know, um, you know, when I think about that story about the guy in the in the exhibit that decides to go live in the past, I, I actually think that, that they did stick to the central point of that story, which was that, you know, if given the choice between two realities, we are going to pick the one that we like the most. But the uh, series version of that inverted it and said, well, instead of picking the one we like the most, we're going to pick the one we think we deserve which is a whole, you know, metaphysical, ontological, <laughs> you know, and which is actually extremely appropriate for, uh, for, you know, I think the, the major themes that he wrote about during his entire career. So I, I think it's, it's highly appropriate that they change a great deal, but that, you know, if you look at the common thread between the two stories, I think it's solid. I thought it was a really interesting idea in the adaptation, real life, that the idea that if you became confused about which life was actually yours, that your actual life might seem implausibly good. 
you know, yeah. that you would look at your actual life and say, like, that couldn't be my life. That's too good. You know, everything's too good. It ha it, that must be some fraudulent thing that I've dreamed up for myself or something. Yeah. Um, so, okay. But so, so Sarah, which of these episodes did you, uh, did you like the best? Uh, I really liked Autofac. Um, and I really liked Impossible Planet. Um, and I had a soft spot for, shit, I'm forgetting the name of the, the one with the, um, uh, the director and the general and, you know, yeah, she basically humanist. falls in love with an alien. Yeah, humanist. Yeah, I, uh, I had a soft spot for that one just because it was kind of a pleasure to see. I, I love the idea, especially, you know, in all the stories that are going around right now about Me Too and, you know, waking up every morning as a female and having to read these things. Um, there's something very funny to me about, you know, if aliens wanted to invade Earth, all they would have to do is be really good to the women, <laughs> you know, and like there was something hilarious about that. And it's not something that you you see very often in this idea that she would be, um, you know, taken with this alien who treats her much better than her real husband treated her. Um, I don't know. I, there was just something very entertaining uh, about that for me. But yeah, I think that my favorite would be uh, probably Autofact. Well, it was funny because you see that same thing you were just talking about in the father thing a little bit too. The the chicks dig mm -hmm. the joie de vivre mm -hmm. of alien replica uh, husbands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, so, so John, you mentioned that there were two that you thought were good. Which were the two that you thought were good? Uh, yeah. So safe and sound and autofac are my two favorites. Uh, so if I was if I was like uh, arranging this show. Uh, I would make it a three episode season and I would do, I would open with Autofac and then have the Hoodmaker in the middle and then end with, uh, Safe and Sound. Um, so like do like the first, first season Black Mirror style, very, very short season. That's how I would do it. Um, if I had to include more, I guess I would include real life in there. That's that, I have that as number four and then I have, um, Kill All Others as number five, although sort of grudgingly, uh, <laughs> because like I said, I, I don't think it works, but it, at least it kind of had kind of a cool social commentary idea in there. It's just that the execution, uh, pun intended, is so clumsy <laughs> that I, I couldn't really, I couldn't really enjoy it overall. Um, yeah, it was too heavy-handed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I wanted it to work, and I was like, I could see why they put it last. Like, they, it kind of seems like the sort of episode that might make an impact, but they just bungled it. So, um, so yeah, like I, I couldn't, I couldn't really advocate for putting that in there, and then. Um, uh, anyway, you were asking about what I liked, so <laughs> yeah, stay, stay, stay on target. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'll say I have my t I have my as my top three: Impossible Planet, The Commuter, and Autofac. Uh, how about Anthony? What do you have as your kind of your top couple picks? Okay. <laughs> uh, so I would say my favorite was was pretty significantly Crazy Diamond. Um, which I yeah, thought was just, 10. I don't, I think it had very little to do with Philip K. Dick. Although you could see like the, cause there's like, like, especially in some of like the Martian novels, he's really interested in, I mean, like, like he definitely has like infidelity and, 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 um, as like a recurring plot point and, and the idea of like, you know, uh, sort of then eventually realizing the virtues of like coming back to like the sort of boring wife. And so there's little pieces that are kind of like him, but fundamentally I liked it more just because it was just this crazy mishmash of all these different things. And, and it just felt like, um, it just didn't feel like anything I'd seen before. And, and, um, I thought like all the actors were really compelling. Um, 
I liked the the arc of the of the Steve Buscemi character, where I think he's like not a completely terrible person, but he in some ways is still like not redeemed at the end. Um, I, I just liked sort of how unpredictable it was. Uh, I would say Kill All Others was another one that I I agree that the execution was very strange, and I think because I knew it was written and directed by D. Reese, who made that uh, Netflix movie Mud Mudbound, which. Mm-hmm is much more conventionally good. I had to sort of assume on some level that it was like intentionally very like weirdly executed, which, and and then like, I think just something about watching it is almost like the experience of like going slightly crazy yourself. So even though I don't think it's unequivocally successful again, um, I, I it like really got under my skin. Um, and then Impossible Planet and Autofac, I thought were, were just like very enjoyable. Well, it's interesting that you liked Crazy Diamond and Kill All Others so much. And I, I agree that there is a sense in which they kind of make you feel like you're going crazy in sort of the way that a Philip K. Dick story makes you feel like you're going crazy. So I can kind of see that they're in that spirit. But could you explain, could you just explain like literally what happens in Crazy Diamond? <laughs> I was going to ask the same thing because I have no idea. Okay. Um, all right. Because this is with spoilers, right? Yeah. Um, so basically there's a man who works for a factory um, that makes uh, quantum computers, which for hand wavy reasons, basically are used to power um, like empty, like basically, I'm not sure if they're like humans who've gone catatonic or just like biological robotic shells, but these things called Jackson, Jack and Jill's. Um, he meets a woman who uh, is, is a Jill whose, uh, whose quantum computer is failing her. So she needs to steal um, another one uh, and, and so like, she sort of enlists him in this scheme to try to steal a bunch of them, one of which she will steal for herself. Um, but then the, the handoff goes badly because she, because basically like the people she's selling it to did not, like they decide to just keep it for themselves. She reenlists him to try to like get revenge and, and they sort of successfully, um, you know, put more, another hook her up to another quantum computer kill all the people who were their enemies. Um, I think she was working with, okay, it's a really complicated plot. Uh, she was working with his boss um, who then sh- uh, gets killed as well. I think that, sh- uh, and then, so there are a couple key moments where I think he kind of backs down one is, which is not made a big deal. I'd one is he pulls the alarm um, when at the last minute, when, when they're doing the initial heist, the second time, you know, he, he doesn't defend like he's basically taking, the the quantum essence out or seems semi willing to take the quantum essence out of her when threatened by his boss. So she eventually decides to, to leave him behind. And so then she goes to his long suffering wife and says, why don't we like take this boat together and ditch this guy? Okay. What's with the pig people? Oh, uh, I don't know. I just like that part, but there's no explanation. (laughs) And there's this whole discussion around like percentage of normality, which didn't, it, it, yeah, it was never explained, but it, that to me felt like the whole setting was so strange and unexplained that I didn't mind that there were large pieces of the world building that weren't explained. Why, why, um, it just why felt were they like living at the edge of a cliff and why couldn't they dig in the dirt? <laughs> I, I think it was because, um, basically, so the, there's some sort of like corporation that, uh, does like wants to turn them into like these like you know docile consumers and so like sell, selling them all this food that's expiring very quickly and has put something under the the ground that um, basically means that you know un- after a certain point you you hit whatever plate or whatever they've put into the ground. 
Okay, wait, Sarah, you say, you say it's a metaphor? I, I honestly think a lot of those things were kind of meant to give us that sense of everything in this world is decaying and dying, and that adds to the part of our Steve Buscemi's sort of anxiety and fatigue about the whole thing um, and why he is, you know, attracted to, you know, doing something different. And um, So I feel like all of those things were meant to be kind of visual metaphors of uh, what this world is like. I, to me, the only thing that bothered me that was unexplained was the little girl in the woods. Like, where did she oh, come yeah. from? Like, <laughs> she doesn't seem like she belongs with the other gypsies because she's kind of, you know, she's in this immaculate white dress. She's not wearing rags patched together and everything. So you have no idea where she came from or what her purpose is. Um, I liked that she kind of, you know, snuck in and put the gun in in the Jill's hand uh, at the last minute. That was cool. But I, I just was like, where did she come from? But, I mean, overall, the episode, though, was so... I liked that it was campy. Like, that's the one thing I did like about it. It felt like a 90s music video um, where they were just trying to put random, weird imagery, you know, uh, as much as possible in there. And it had that sense, like, this is going to be on or could have been on an episode of MST3K. Okay, well, so wait. So what Anthony was saying was interesting that this is a, basically a satire of consumerism where the whole society is constructed in such a way that you have to keep buying things, even up to your house, which they purposely situate at the edge of a cliff so that they are constantly falling into the sea and you have to keep buying new houses. Is that is that what you're saying, Anthony? Yeah, although I would say that, I mean, part of what I liked about it was that it is a satire of consumerism in part, and then it is many other things kind of all mashed together, which I think is also part of I mean, this sounds like such a cop out, but I think in some ways is a very, um, you know, Dickian kind of thing to do is that there's one aspect, which is consumer satire. And then there are other interests as well. I'm, I mean, I sort of admired this episode in the sense that it was obviously it was sort of original and it had an artistic vision and it was doing its own thing. I just found the weirdness just overwhelming and sort of grating. But I could understand I could understand people liking it. Mm-hmm. Um and I guess the one th- other thing I'd want to say about the world building that I think that's interesting about the contrast is something like Crazy Diamond, where there's so many different ideas. I think like I'm willing to accept that certain things don't necessarily seem to make sense versus an episode like Real Life, where I think it feels much more, you know, grounded in a lot of ways and, and as if trying to be like a realistic extrapolation of, 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 of certain ideas and technologies. The fact then that like the, to me, like the, the fundamental idea of this VR gate, like world that you can get trapped in by destroying the VR device in that world seems to me so, I don't know that it's actually more implausible than anything in Crazy Diamond, but it kind of stands out because the tone of the two episodes is so different. Whereas with Crazy Diamond, I'm like, uh, pig person, sure, I'll go with it. Well, okay. I'll agree with you that I thought that the aesthetic of real life was just Blade Runner. And the aesthetic of cheap um, Blade Runner, yeah, of of the Hoodmaker was just Minority Report, and, yeah, like cheap Minority Report. I mean, mm. <laughs> and, and so like I, I'll grant you that um you know an episode like Crazy Diamond had more going for it, and, and it, it kind of made me sad actually going back and reading some of these stories that they didn't do some of the more weird things. Like in one of the stories, um, in Foster You're Dead, they have the the furniture is like. Uh, is like AI animals and it's constantly running around and handing you stuff mm. and taking dishes away and things like that. And as long as you're doing that story, I thought they should have stuck that in there somewhere. I thought that was kind of interesting and new. Um, but yeah, so uh, 
Um, I guess, and I guess, if we're going to talk about the consumer satire, I guess we want to talk about Autofac, which, as I said, is one of my favorite of these um, stories. So, John, uh, you you liked Autofac, right? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, you know, I, I I felt like this, even the, even though this is one of my favorites. I mean, I thought I thought like it was too long. Like, I mean, it could have. I, I, I although I think every episode basically could have lost a few minutes in editing, uh, even, even safe and sound, which was my favorite. It definitely should have lost the last five minutes where we didn't need the explanation of that, uh, of everything that happened. But, uh, but in auto fact, it just like, it was just like a little bit slow. There was a bunch of stuff that was extraneous, but the overall, um, the overall episode I really enjoyed. I, I really liked seeing the factory. It, it like, it almost could have been a crossover with, uh, with metalhead from black mirror. Um, but uh, I, I and it's kind of funny that this was on Amazon because like Jeff Bezos probably really liked that whole Autofact thing, um, <laughs> <laughs> seeing that in action. Um, uh, and it was and it was no, but he would have made it the hero of the story, right? Yeah, right, 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 true, true. Um, and then it was kind of great that an issue of Wired plays a pivotal plot point, so yeah. it's kind of p- perfect for us to to talk about it on this on this podcast. But. Well, and tell me what you think, John. I thought that the premise of Autofact, granted that it was from the fifties, was. Mm-hmm. Interesting enough and fresh enough to be, you know, interesting in uh, 2018. You know, this idea of they've yeah. set up these automated factories delivering goods by drone and they can't shut it off. And yeah. you're, you're getting all these like um, uh, crocs and stuff, all this useless crap you don't need. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it's it, it's consuming all the natural resources in, an, in, right. in a way that's actually threatening human survival. Uh, I thought that was a great premise. I thought it was very speaking of metaphors. I thought it had a lot of obviously metaphorical uh, resonance. Um, and I don't know if you saw, um, I didn't actually get a chance to read it, but there was this piece recently by Ted Chang where he was saying that just from the blurb I read, he was saying basically that people are so afraid of a- evil AIs conquering humanity and enslaving us and stuff like that. But that we basically have corporations that are basically evil AIs mm-hmm. that have conquered us uh, already. And why don't we have the same level of fear about that as we do about you know, mm-hmm. the literal AI machines. And I thought that this story kind of did a nice job of literalizing that, uh, yeah. that metaphor. Yeah, I agree. And I, I totally agree about the the whole premise, like feeling very fresh. Like I, as I was watching it, I was actually thinking like, oh, I mean, I could actually see reprinting this story today. Like, I mean, if the story is like, if, if the, if the actual story is like the episode, um, and, and I see from your comments that it was, it's a similar premise, but not necessarily Super similar, maybe, but, um, I mean, I have to go, I have to read it for sure, but, um, but I mean, just like, if this story, if this episode was, you know, just written as a story, like, I would have been like, yeah, you know, that totally feels like a contemporary story to me. So that was, and that, that was very cool. Um, and I, and I love the idea as, as a person who, um, has uh, spent a lot of time studying post-apocalyptic fiction, I, I thought it was a really interesting sort of thing to have to deal with in an apocalypse. Uh, and it totally made sense. Like, I, I, I bought it and I, I, I really, I really liked it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's one of my favorites. But, um, yeah, and I gather in the story, uh, they don't end up being robots. Uh, so it's like, how, how does it resolve in there? Uh, so in the story, they get the different factories to fight each other over resources and destroy oh. each other. Hmm. That's pretty cool, too. Uh, I mean, does it work as, does it work pretty well in the story? Is that like one of the better stories or? I think the story's way too long for the idea. Oh, uh-huh. Okay. Oh, interesting. Cause I would say that I think, I think that's true that the story is too long overall, though. I think the ending is kind of rushed because then the, the resolution comes very quickly. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend reprinting it in its current form, <laughs> but I, I, I really like the premise. Um, let's see, Sarah, what did you think of Autofact? I loved it. It was it was uh, one of my favorites as well. I thought it was great, and I really loved the central female character. Um, again, you know, taking the 
sort of Philip K. Dick character um, and having her, having it just be female um, and with everything that, mm-hmm. that, you know, comes with it. Um, and she was also a very plausible character. Like you can, you can kind of imagine her, you know, being one of these sort of, you know, titans of Silicon Valley, you know, brilliant and somebody basing an AI after her. Um, and so I think that, you know, the whole thing in terms of character development was, was really wonderful, which is something that is missing from most PKD I've ever read. Like, I, I don't think that you read PKD for character development. I don't think mm-hmm. you read it for, uh, you know, beautiful turns of phrase. You read it for the ideas, mm-hmm. you know, and that is the strongest, uh, the strongest thing that, that has ever come out of PKD. And I think that's also why he's an inexhaustible resource um, for adaptation. But yeah, I, I loved this story. Well, there were some uh, some sexy times in this episode <laughs> and in um, Human Is that, jump, yeah. that stick out in my mind that are not, you know, I don't particularly remember <laughs> any sex scenes in any Philip K. Dick stories offhand. Yeah. Yeah, I think we know by why Brian Cranston chose to star in that movie. Because <laughs> he's one of the executive producers, and I gather he's one of the, the main forces be- behind the show make- being made. Uh, so just kind of funny. It's like, because otherwise, why would you pick that episode? Like, really? Like, of all these episodes, that's the one you want to be in? It's like, oh, I know why. <laughs> well, but then I think he also gets to do this transformation between yeah. being, like, the sort of, like, monster monstrous husband to the to the kind ones that may be interesting from an act- actorly perspective. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Do you agree with that, Anthony? That are there any sex scenes in Philip K. Dick stories? Um, there are of? a few. They tend to be very. Um, I mean, I think again, like in the fifties, you probably you had to be very discreet about it. I think when you move into the sixties, there he tends to be a bit more open about sex, and you start, you also start to get a sense of like the kind of woman that he's interested in, which is basically Rachel and Blade Runner. Um, and he like you know, the, and so the, there are sex scenes, but they're very you know, and then they clasped each other. And then a few minutes later, he asked her something, something, something. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Like, you know, obviously back in the day, like you couldn't be as free with it as you can now. But I mean, like Heinlein had lots of like, you know, sort of unusual type of uh, uh, at least alluded to certain types of unusual types of sex things in, in his stories. Like, like you know, polyamory and stuff like way before that was uh, accepted at all. Um, and I don't mean to say uh, any of that's weird or, or, or anything. It was just that uh, it was beyond the norm at the time. And uh, and, and he was one of the first writers to, to, to sort of... Uh, uh, have that kind of stuff in his fiction. Um, and so it's like, and, and Dick was writing in, at, at the same time. So, I mean, he certainly could have, he just, he chose not to, uh, which is fine. I mean, uh, but, but it, it did seem weird to me though, I think was what you're getting at, right, Dave, is that, that they inserted these like, uh, pretty, uh, pretty vivid sex scenes into this Philip K. Dick show. Yeah. And they felt out of place, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I, not that I, I don't care particularly, but they, I, I did feel like, like I couldn't help thinking whenever, when they came on, I was like, oh, this is, they're, they're doing this to <laughs> goose the ratings for, this is yeah. a TV show and they got to put it in. Like, and not that they, it was particularly, um, graphic or exploitative mm-hmm. or anything like that, but it did feel like, oh, we've, we've got the 1950s science fiction story and now like here's the mm-hmm. sex scene sort of right. stuck into it. Right. Well, and you know, given I felt like every episode could have been trimmed a little bit, like, I mean, in those two, in the, in the, in, the, in all the sex scenes, like, okay, well, if you could have just cut away from that, that, that would have saved us a minute or, or 30 seconds or something at least. And like, what, okay, let, let's keep cutting folks, you know, but, um. Although I, I did kind of think it was interesting in Human Is where the, the wife goes down to the sex club mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in the lower levels and you like just kind of like, 
have an orgy inside a giant bubble of air, and that, that, that's like an erotic <laughs> experience in this, um, you know, environment because air is yeah. such a luxury. I bet that wasn't in the story. <laughs> no, yeah, I think there was a, a New York Times critic that that you know griped about that scene in particular and said it was, you know, something like it was the most random scene. <clears throat> and but to me, it was so central to the to the you know the character development of this woman that obviously she's extremely unsatisfied by what she's getting at home. Um, <laughs> so you know, and and frankly, you know, in terms of of the uh, whether or not the scenes should be there. I will always be in favor of sex scenes that are not overtly phallocentric because that's what you see 90% of the time. So I think that that is also part of their very clear desire to directly um, challenge a lot of the things that we associate with PKD. Uh, you know, just on, before we move uh, too far off autofac, um you know, I'll say, you know, although I really like that episode, I, I feel like one of the things that happened in that one, um, in the sense that the, that the resolution ends up with, with, with the people turning out to be androids, it's like, that felt like a very sort of, um, modern day, uh, revision of, of, of Philip K. Dick. Like, like if, uh, it's, it's like somebody who knew Philip K. Dick's work. Uh, or at least knew it from Blade Runner. Uh, when they re- when they wrote this story, they're like, "Oh, hey, like, what if we what if we took it in a in a, in a very Dickian direction, uh, more so than what the original story had?" And so, and that's one of the things that I actually think um, is kind of hampering the the overall uh, ten episodes is that a lot of the things end in this sort of predictably Dickian way. Uh, to the extent that Dick can be predictable at all, but um, there, there's just like a lot of things where it's like. It's like, okay, yeah, it's like, if you know anything about Phil Kiddick's work, it's like, okay, yeah, that seems pretty obvious that that's where that's going, you know? So, so that's one of the, uh, that's one of the things that I, I felt like it kind of got to be a bit repetitive knowing that it's like, okay, well, these are all Philip Kiddick shows, so I kind of know where this is going to go. I have to say though, John, like watching Autofact, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. And everything no. you say is completely true. And, um, you know, there, it was, it made perfect sense within the context right. of that world. And it was, you know, there were clues and everything, but it was a nice surprise to me. So, however no, obvious. No, I, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't object to it in that particular episode, but I'm just saying, like, it's sort of emblematic of, of that particular issue. Um, and I think that was actually a smart move in that, in that decision, in, in that, in that choice. Although I, I do kind of love the idea of them turning the auto facts on each other. That sounds pretty cool. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it worked here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I mentioned, um, so I have Impossible Planet as my favorite, uh, of these episodes. And, um, I agree with you. I think, John, you said that the ending was just kind of like, what? And and yeah. I, I agree that um I wish it were a little bit less just purely magical what happens at the end. Mm-hmm. I'll just I guess I'll just say so the premise of this episode is that there's a spaceship and they're hired to take a very elderly woman, she's like three hundred and fifty years old or something, to Earth, even though Earth no longer exists, and they're gonna pull a scam on her where they're just gonna take her to some vaguely earth like planet and take her money. Um and then it turns out that somehow magically the main character and this elderly woman are transported back to earth when it still existed and was, there was pretty um, swimming holes and stuff like that. Um, and I, I just, I, just the whole thing I found very, just worked for me really emotionally really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I wish, I wish there'd been a little bit more like of a sci-fi hand wavy bullshit kind of stuff at the end. So that it wasn't mm-hmm. just, just pure magic, but mm-hmm. overall I, I, I found it a very enjoyable episode. Um, I think Sarah, you said you liked this one. Yeah, and, and, you know, for a lot of, um, I feel like a lot of PKD stories do this in part because of maybe his background in, 
um, in theology. And, um, you know, I think when we, even though he's considered hard sci-fi, a lot of his stuff isn't necessarily what we think of as science fiction, because science fiction likes to invent explanations for in- in- incredible things, impossible things. Um, and, you know, uh, it's a very different approach, and it's very much more artistic uh, and, and, and must, much more uh, philosophical to just present um, the idea that that the world that you know is not necessarily correct and not necessarily true and um, to not explain things, to just have impossible things happen and, and not explain it. So even though it, you know, as a viewer, you want to understand how that scene happened. You want to understand how the characters got to that point, anything, you know, some, some explanation, um, because it's really effective and it's really beautiful. Um, but I, I do think that it is a common thing you see a lot in PKD is there is no explanation. It just is. I just, I mean, this maybe, maybe this is dumb, but I just wish for me there had been some Star Trek kind of thing where they're like, <laughs> I'm reading an anomaly. I can't explain it. Like, uh-huh. I think yeah. just something like that would have been enough for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess the other aspect of it is because on some level, especially given the name of the episode and the story, is you're like, okay, on so, in some way, they're going to end up on Earth, right? So the question is not, are they going to end up on Earth? Is what is the sort of, you know, the, the mechanism that's going to allow them to get there? And then you sort of hit, it turns out, oh, it just basically, we decided. Um, and it's still like well done, but I think that's part of why it's unsatisfying is because the, the episode is structured in a way where you think there's going to be some sort of like clever explanation mm-hmm. and that's just dodged completely. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's why I didn't like it, I think, because I, I was enjoying it up until uh, the, the ending. And then, and like when the when the episode actually when the credits started when the credits first popped up, I was just like really I I just like threw I literally threw up my hands and I was like that's it that's the end like what the hell like what we don't get any explanation for that um like if if so if if it had happened if everything had happened like it does like I probably would have been happier with it if if the if the guy on the ship doesn't look exactly like her her fucking grandfather or whatever it was or whoever that guy was that, that she had in the picture. It's like, or was it her old husband or whoever it was? But I was like, why Why does he look exactly like the guy? Like, I don't understand. Like, at least if they got onto the planet and then he just sort of ended up in that role or something, I could have bought it because it's like, oh, well, maybe maybe they're maybe they're hallucinating or something. Like, you know, maybe there's some kind of weird thing in the air or whatever and, and like, and, they're, and that's not really what's on the planet. They're actually dying and they're just having this hallucination that they're in this uh, paradise uh, of Earth. Uh, like, that at least I could have under, understood, but like, what we got, I just didn't understand at all. I'm like, what? What? What, what? what happened? Well, like, wait, isn't, um, isn't John the implication that they've traveled back in time and he's become her grandfather? That's what I got out of it. Oh, okay. Well, that makes me like it even less, but okay. Well, yeah. I think you can interpret it because like, there's also like the, the way they sort of tilt because you never actually see what happened. Like there's no independent confirmation from back on the ship that they've disappeared or anything like that. And then like the camera kind of tilts up and you get this sort of ominous music before they cut to credit. So I think it's meant to be that they could have traveled back in time. It could be just some sort of magical version of earth that still exists or it could be a delusion that they're suffering as they die. I mean, I think all of okay, those things are... But if it's are, a magical are, version of Earth that still exists, why does he look like her grandfather or whatever? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think there's a good explanation. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, a lot also, of them have un, unexplained endings. I mean, the Hoodmaker also mm-hmm. has you know, yeah. absolutely no idea whether or not she, you know, let the guy burn to death. So, mm-hmm. 
Wait, 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 let me just stick with the possible planet for a second, because <laughs> yeah. I don't think that she, he should have been her grandfather, if, if, I'm, right. if, that, if I'm understanding it right, because then you get into like the weird genetic stuff, and I hate that trope of yeah. people become their own <laughs> grandparent or yeah. whatever. But if, if she just had a picture of her grandfather, and he was standing in the background somewhere... And oh. she's like, when I saw you, I knew that's you, that's you. And he's like, no, that's not me. It's like a fuzzy photo, whatever. She's like, no, I know that's you. And so she, she knows, she, she has at least some reason to believe to like, no matter what the evidence is, no matter what is happening, I, 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 I believe that we're going to, that, that you're going to end up back on earth and I want to go with you because I have this photograph. And it seems mm-hmm. like, you know, um, sort of like a foolish hope. But like from her point of view, it's it sort of makes a kind of sense. And we can sort of see like why she would be so driven to do this in, in the face of all this evidence to the contrary. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I think it should have been. Right. Um, I, I guess like part of it is like it can't be. I think something about the ending is like fundamentally not going to like is going to resist like a rational explanation because the fact that they go out and that they, um, you know, choose to stay out and that he specifically decides to go out and stay out and choose to like basically, you know, presumably die out there is this sort of either insane and I don't know, you know, like, you know, he's succumbing to this kind of madness or it's this almost sort of mystical decision. So like, I think the grandfather stuff in some ways is meant to get us there. Um, I'm not, I agree that it seems doesn't quite work for me, but I think that's part of what it's there for is that, that it, there's this sort of mad, there is ultimately there's this magical component to the ending. I just want an anomaly. Is that so much to ask for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think an anomaly would have made made the medicine go down easier. But um, so what's also what's the deal with the robot? Like the robot, like gets like he gets his angry eyes twice, and he doesn't do anything to to save the woman. He knows she's going down to this planet that that seems, or he he thinks she's going down to this planet that's going to kill her. But then he just lets her go do it. I mean, like, unless the robot's in on it, he knows what's happening. He knows that it's going to be safe. I mean, I don't know. I don't understand the robot. Like, why did his robot, why did his robot eyes get red and menacing? <laughs> he didn't do anything. I think the robot eyes got red for false suspense. I mean, I think the reason he, he does, he allows it to happen is because it's also established that she's going to die soon. So mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that, well, he just wants her to, like, believe in this illusion and to get some happiness before she dies. So I think that's why he doesn't object. I mean, I get that, that he would do that and that he would make those decisions, but I I don't understand why he's given the red eyes. Like it's like, yeah, I mean, I think that was dumb. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I I just have to, other than I agree with the red eyes, but otherwise I really liked that robot character. And I really liked just the dynamic of the robot Butler leading the very elderly woman around. And she's kind of, um, you know, losing her faculties somewhat, and he's super capable because, because, uh, you know, intellectually, because he's a robot and is kind of taking care of her. And I just thought that was re- really interesting characters. And like Sarah's saying, like they're the kind of characters that you don't see actually in actual Philip K. Dick stories so much because they don't tend to have interesting female characters. Um, whereas I thought this was a legitimately interesting female character in this story. Yeah. I, I agree, and I and I like I really like the robot also. Um, yeah, and it's like uh, you know I I, I was saying I, I uh, the ending of this, even though it doesn't make any sense to me, it's like it's it's better than the story ending, which it's like it's like they take her down to the planet or whatever, and like the guy comes back to the ship and like he has a quarter in his pocket, and he's like, oh, like what's this thing? And like he sees it's a quarter, and it's like, and then that's the end. It's like, oh, it really was Earth. It's like, oh my <laughs> god, like it's like I mean I know the story was written in the fifties, but come on. <laughs> Okay, well, so wait, wait, let's move on to another story, because I want to talk about The Commuter, which I have as one of my favorites, and I don't think people have particularly mentioned, but um, 
and and this is another one like as much as I liked it, I, I needed an explanation, sort of like I did with uh, um, uh, oh, uh, the Crazy Diamond one. Um, but um, I guess I'll just throw that out there. Can, does anyone can anyone explain this story to me? No. It sounds like no. Okay, so the so the setup basically <laughs> is that there is a railroad employee. And a woman starts coming to his ticket window to buy tickets to a stop train stop that does not exist. And he eventually tracks his way to this train stop and finds it a sort of like perfect place, a perfect town where everything's awesome. Um, but then when he comes home, his son, who is very troubled and is a constant source of grief for this guy and his wife, has vanished from their lives as if he had never existed. And then he goes back to the town and confronts the woman who is buying tickets from him, who it seems like kind of runs the town and everyone there. It's not perfect, but they're all kind of trapped there or something. And they all have dark secrets that maybe they got rid of uh, by coming to the town or tried to escape by coming to the town. And he eventually gets his son back. And again, like emotionally, this worked really well for me. And I thought the the main character was real, really interesting character. He just had an interesting face and interesting expressions and things and seems like someone you would meet, meet in real life. What? Sorry, he's the actor who played Wormtail in the Harry Potter series. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, I I feel like I need to watch this again, and even if I do, I'm not sure it'll ever actually make mm-hmm. sense. But I, like enough of the pieces were there that it kind of worked for me overall. Um, but I don't know. Does does anyone? So I, I guess no one no one can really explain particularly what was going on in this episode. No, no. I mean, no. I mean your explanation goes as far as my understanding does. <laughs> yeah, like it's 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 you have to I think sort of think about them in reverse, right? So like in the end, you kind of realize, okay, so the whole thing is about whether or not um, if you have the choice, do you accept the version of reality that is um, kinder and happier, but feels a little bit empty in terms of authenticity, or do you accept the authentic life that is probably going to be full of pain and suffering? Uh, and so if you accept that that is the point, then you can kind of go backward through the story and it, and it, and it makes a lot more sense. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of like the idea of this like weird little secret town and everything. Like, and, and that does seem like a very fifties idea that, you know, it's like, Oh, there's a stop in between these two stops on the train or whatever. Like, and, but I, I like the kind of idea of finding this little magical town like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I wish it made more sense. Um, you know, uh, like I didn't understand what was happening with the sun and everything, why he had disappeared and all that kind of thing. And it's like hearing you explain it, like kind of makes it make more sense to me. But like, I feel like there's not enough of it there to, 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 to grab hold of as a viewer. Um, although also, I also, I also thought that like, why is this, like, why did they pick a boring ass title like The Commuter? I mean, I know what the story was called, but it should have been called like The Last Train to Make in Heights or something. It's like, at least that's like a, a, a distinct title that actually, uh, is like basically like what the story, like, you know, the, tells you what the story is, uh, uh, I mean. But The Commuter kind of is sort of, it's, it's like the perfect reference when you're, you know, you're saying the everyman, right? Which is classic pkd so it's like i mean i guess it could be any train conductor <laughs> i don't know i just i i i i have a distaste for like these really commuted uh, <laughs> really, um, these really these really conventional uh sort of uh just like titles that could apply to like well well directions. i mean as we're recording this there's a movie called the commuter with liam neeson that just <laughs> came out that's so. true i also I, that's right i forgot about that i also uh hated that title <laughs> but, uh, uh but uh, just speaking of uh, other actors, you know, we're talking about the the main actor in this episode, but also uh, Tuppen Spindleton is in it, who who plays Riley in Sensate. So it was nice to see her uh, getting other work. 
I want to say, like, I did read the story for this, and it has actually kind of an interesting explanation, which is not in the show, and I don't think is really consistent with the show. But in the story, this town failed to come into existence by one vote, which I think I think that is in the TV show. But but because um, because of this, it, it sort of existed in a sort of like Schrodinger's cat kind of way, where it's sort of there and sort of not, and it's gradually um, firming up its existence, and as it does. Um, things outside the town have to change to conform with the existence of, that the town is is forming into. So, like, if there's somebody who works, who who lives in the town and who commutes into the city, then the place that they commute to, ha- the city has to change to create the place that they commute to, so that things remain consistent. And so that's why things change when he comes back. And I thought, I actually, I thought that was a really interesting idea, um, but it sheds really no light on the TV episode, particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, cool. How about any? Uh, so let's see. We talked about that. The other uh, hoodmaker I have is number four. Mm-hmm. Um, how do people feel about? See, Sarah, did you just say something about hoodmaker? Uh, just that it's another one that you you're not quite sure what happens at the end, and they leave it, you know, um, ambiguous on purpose. And I feel like, in general, you know, in terms of science fiction, whether or not science fiction has a responsibility to explain or not, I tend to err on the side of not, because I feel like when the creators of science fiction have have this, you know, sense of, oh, we better explain this for people, then it's it tends to be bad explanations. Like it always <laughs> tends to be something like the Midichlorians. And I so I feel like maybe I've just been traumatized by too many poor explanations. But I prefer things if given the choice, um, you know, with that are left a little bit un, unexplained. Well like all the telepaths having facial markings. Yeah, that was cool. Was there any, but no, there was no, was there any explanation for that? that I don't think so. That was impli- even applied or anything? Yeah. No. Oh. No, but I, I, when, when Sarah was talking about, um, you know, the, right at the end here, yeah, I was saying, it feels, I felt like a cop out to me to, um, to sort of just, like, end the episode where it did. Like, it's like, uh, as much as I, I feel like every episode could have been shortened, including this one, uh, I thought, like, at least the ending of this one, just just give us two more minutes to, like, to actually just show us, like, what happens right at the end. It's like, I don't understand cutting away before they show us the decision. It didn't feel like one of those stories that, like, warrants that. It's not like, it's not like Inception, where it's like, no, Inception has to end that way. Don't fucking explain that. You know, it's like, uh, but, uh, like, with this, it didn't feel like that. So I don't understand why they cut it there. Uh, Anthony, yeah, do I, I don't know that I can defend it on like you know dramatic grounds, but I, I did just find it sort of this partly because I, I thought like that scene, <laughs> the scene before had sort of gone on for too long, where she's sort of <laughs> well, agonizing at the door, and yeah. so just like then when you realize oh they're not going to resolve this and it's just going to end in this sort of little this moment of uncertainty, to me that was just like like fun, like not fun isn't the right word, but just like ple- like sort of pleasurable like when you realize that like the story isn't going to take like answer the question and it's just going to leave you with the question. Sometimes like that can be like really pleasurable as well. And I, and I enjoyed that. Um, so I guess I, I was, I was sort of on, on but see, on so I, I felt like it was clear that she was not going to let him through the door, that she was going to let him burn to death. And that's why it pans away to the burning city in that last shot, because it's what's happened is that the telepathic people and the non-telepathic people are now in open warfare with each other. And their relationship is, um, you know, a microcosm of that. And it's just the tragedy of people with different, you know, people from different backgrounds or whatever, not being able to to bridge those differences. Um, because the the ending 
totally doesn't work. Like if, if, if they were to extend it two minutes, John, and then she's like, okay, actually, I love you here. I'll, I'll, I'll open the door. Let's, let's, let's run away together. I mean, it doesn't work with anything else that happened in the episode. It seems to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess, I mean, the other thing is that though, if they, if they, they wanted, I think a degree of uns because like if they'd had her, I think if they wanted to really say like, he's left there, like then they would have shown her walking away. So to like mm-hmm. still have it in that moment and with him still alive and still begging, I think is meant to at least create, I agree that like that your explanation seems more plausible um, and, and the more likely ending. But I think like it, I think they ended it where they did, you know, partly because they did want to leave a little bit of uncertainty there. Mm. Yeah. I guess I just wanted to see the, see her walk away and like let him burn to death. I, I wanted to see him burn to death. <laughs> yeah. That guy, he just can't catch a break. Uh, Richard Madden, man. <laughs> Although I, I will say like, I mean, that's like why like, you know, crazy diamond is like, it recognizes that a man can be shitty, but he doesn't necessarily desire des- deserve to die a horrible death. Just throw him off the boat. Throw him off the that's boat. Right. You don't have to burn him to death. Just throw him off the boat. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I, I did. I did like Hoodmaker, right? I, I, and it was actually the first one I saw because um, I uh, because you know you. Uh, I think Anthony mentioned earlier how um, in the UK they aired these in different order, and so the Wikipedia page actually has them listed in the UK order. So I thought Hoodmaker was actually the first episode, and so um, obviously on Amazon I saw that it wasn't, but I I. Had, I was trying to read the stories first, and so Hoodmaker, I read Hoodmaker first because I thought it was the first episode. But then when I go sat down to watch TV, I was like, oh man, Hoodmaker isn't first! So I ended up watching them out of order a little bit, which, uh, which bothers me as an anthologist because as an anthologist, you, 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 uh, agonize over the order that you put the stories in the book, and, and your ideal reader will read it in the order that you agonized, uh, putting the stories in <laughs> instead of skipping around like an asshole. Um, but, you know, so I, I skipped around like an asshole, unfortunately. Well, let me say about that story, though. I thought that it had one really interesting idea, which is that in the um, episode, the mobs are attacking the teeps because they don't want their minds read. And in the story, the mobs are attacking the people who are wearing the hoods because they're like, what do you, you know, if you have nothing to hide, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have any problem taking your hood off. So you must be a horrible person. So we're going to rip your uh, hood off and find out what your secrets are. And I thought that that was a much more, I mean, I understand why they had to do it for the TV show because they had this war between the teeps and the humans and so on. But I thought that was a really more interesting idea and more sort of psychologically interesting mm-hmm. and, and relevant yeah. to the current, you know, political environment. Uh, yeah. and so I wish they could have done something with that. Yeah, totally. Well, I think it was harder to sell the idea that, you know, that it, that was in the PKD story that that these empaths are here to hurt you, you know, whereas it, in, in his time, it was a paranoia about about mind reading and about, you know, government interference and Cold War fears and all of that. And, and you know, with us in our society, we understand, well, wait a minute, if there's a, a group of, of people who can read minds, surely that group would be persecuted. And what would that mean? So I feel like, you know, the, our, the series version sort of adjusted for the realities of social justice. Well, and I think it also has these interesting dynamics because um, the, the telepaths are being persecuted, but at the same time, like, you know, that, that the, to the extent that like the government wants to use them, it's not for particular, I mean, that, that like, you know, that, that, that they are essentially like using it to, to spy on people. And, and so like you, I think that, that some of the fears that people have seem legitimate in the context of, um, of the story and like why someone would want to put on a hood um, so like it, 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 seems like a story that, that lives in that area where, where none of the, you know, different sides of it, you're meant to, you know, wholeheartedly endorse. 
Yeah, you 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 uh, empathize with both sides of it, which I think is a nice the one thing that they did really nicely in this in this episode. What did you guys think of the um? The, there's like a, also this thing where basically one of the telepaths is is a sex worker, and the way she does it is she's basically like living through this you know horrific oh, yeah. sexual fantasy of this terrible mm-hmm. you know politician. Yeah, that was that was that was horrifying. Yeah, I thought I, I meant to mention that actually. I thought that was really, really interesting. And I don't think I've ever seen that before. But so basically, yeah, this this telepath is a sex worker, and basically her clients come in and force her to read their minds as they fantasize the most horrible, you know, mm-hmm. um, dominate dominating violent things they can about what they what they want to do to her. Um, and I, yeah, I I don't remember ever seeing that in in science fiction before that I can think of. And I thought that was a really really interesting idea. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of um, what's what's that uh, uh, Cameron movie? Uh, Strange, what's uh, Strange Days? Strange Days, yeah. So Strange oh, yeah. Days, mm-hmm. yeah. So that reminded me of Strange Days uh, because of the way, like you know, the guy has the 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 rig that transmits the emotions or whatever, and like, and then he assaults that woman, and so it's like, or or did they just have sex willingly? I can't even remember, but but I remember it's like you know there was that cross, uh, you know, you know cross-linking between the the sex partners that that, that reminded me of that yeah uh okay so i think we have not talked about safe and sound which john you said that's your favorite right 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 so so did did anybody else not did everybody else not like it uh, i just oh i i liked it i would i would oh, say okay. it was yeah the sec i would say not one of my favorites but so, very solid yeah okay i have a number five so i liked it you know, yeah pretty well Okay, um, cool. but yeah, why don't you talk, John, about why you why why is this this was your favorite? Right. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was like a really believable, creepy dystopian future, and I, I thought it did a, it did a really good job at depicting the technology. Um, again, it kind of felt like it could have been an episode of Black Mirror, um, which yeah, kind of yeah, makes totally. me predisposed predisposed towards liking it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I don't think we needed the recap in the last five minutes. I mean, it was totally I agree one hundred percent. It's like we get it. She loved Big Brother. Give us a little fucking credit, um, <laughs> but. Uh, and, and although, like in this episode, it, uh, uh, which I, I thought was rare amongst uh, these ten, uh, I felt like that was the only five minutes that needed to be cut, really, from that episode. <laughs> like I, I was, I was pretty happy with it. Otherwise, I, I like, I mean, maybe I would have tried to trim it something else down, but I mean, like that was the only thing that jumped out at me. Is like, okay, that was absolutely unnecessary. But the rest of the episode, I really uh, thought was w- was well done. Um, I thought the the actress did a really good job. Uh, who I you know, I don't think I've ever seen before. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I really liked everything about it. I, I, I thought, I, I thought everything looked really good and, uh, yeah, I, I, I bought, I bought it all happening. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a little obvious. Like, I mean, I think it's pretty clear what's going on fairly early on. Um, I, I don't know if it's supposed to be a huge surprise, uh, based on the fact that they felt the need to explain it at the end. I feel like they didn't think we were going to get it, but, um, but I enjoyed it anyway. Well, yeah, let's just say, so the premise of this is that there's a futuristic society where everyone wears these kind of bracelets that are kind of like a, like your iPhone, and they're tracking your movement, they're recording everything you do and transmitting it to the government. And there's a girl who was raised in a settlement outside of the society, and her mother's an activist against it. And they come to the city together, and this uh, teenage girl has to go to high school with these people who, with these kids who wear these bracelets, and she's kind of the, like, fish out of water and has to sort of navigate high school with this weird technology too. Uh, I agree with you, John, the, the actress I thought was just fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess my only, the reason I have this number five is because I thought that her transition to taking a bomb into school needed mm-hmm. a lot more justification than it got mm-hmm. in this episode. 
Uh, I don't know what the time frame was supposed to be, but it seems like she was only in school for like a couple of weeks or something. And I think maybe they should have had like little title cards saying like, mm. you know, fall, yeah. winter, spring, summer or something so that, you mm -hmm. know, her um, yeah. brainwashing was happening over some more plausible span of time. I can't I can't disagree. That would make that would have made it better. Well, yeah, and then it, it, it also be... like, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that. I mean, it's just that it was obviously such that as soon as like, he's like, you got to make a bomb. You real, I mean, you probably have been like, there've been a lot of warning signals already, but at that point, you know that this is obviously a terrible idea. And even if you understand why she might think it's a good idea, like, or that she needs to do it because he's like succeeded in isolating her in all these different ways. Like it's, there's still like, because you know, it's a bad idea. It, you, I think it sort of separate creates a separation from her versus like if they kind of done something where the, the viewer was also tricked and in further into the story and it, that whole thing had been a little bit more plausible, I think the ending would have been more effective for me. Right, because the way I remember it anyway, it seems like she's going into school to set off the bomb. Is that was that what it was? or is Because it seems like it would make no. more sense if it was a sting operation and she was going to pass the bomb to the kid who wronged her or whatever, and that's what she thought she was doing. I thought she thought it was a bomb, or, or she they took they they made it like it was going to be a bomb. But I thought she thought that it was inert or something. Did she think it was a real bomb? I can't remember now. I think the line is, "We would never let you like yeah. actually harm anyone." Yeah. But like that doesn't mean it's not a real bomb. Just that mm -hmm. like that the, the, they're saying we will definitely catch you before then. But then it doesn't seem clear. Well, why then is this? And I think the explanation is that they're gonna that this terrorist cell is supposedly going to force her to set off a bomb anyway, so she might as well just go set off the bomb to, like, root them out. But, like, that seems so convoluted and obviously bad. Yeah, so uh, the ending needed some work, I thought. W were you going to yeah. say something else, Sarah? Uh, just that I, I I feel like, what you know, it wouldn't have worked with an older character. Um, I think a lot of the decisions that they made, they made because mm -hmm. she was clearly young, clearly naive. And I think part of that is that you know, you, you, as you're going through watching, you know, it's very clear what is going to happen from the beginning, almost too clear to the point where I feel like it had to have been intentional. And so instead of it being a surprise, it's like this sense of foreboding because you're watching this girl who's very naive go through this whole experience and the whole time you're just kind of cringing for her, <laughs> you know? And so I feel like that, you know, that building sense of foreboding into what has happened. If anything, it surprised me that she didn't, you know, just as a viewer, it would have been nice if she had actually figured it out right before she actually mm. did it and said, well, wait, no. Um, and so it was painful to watch her just go through with it when you knew what was going to happen from the beginning. Mm. And that, I think, is also another uh, reason why the ending was too drawn out. We didn't need to see, like, once we realized, okay, she had been tricked, to see the sort of denouement happen, <laughs> you're like, oh, I really, I don't, I don't want to watch any more of this. <laughs> well, and I'll say, I thought the actress was great. And I also thought the guy who was the voice on the phone was fantastic. Yeah. And just, yeah. I mean, like they have, they seem to have such chemistry at the beginning. And then how he goes from nice to scary, uh, I just yeah. thought was, was really, really effective. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, and, you know, one of the other things I really loved about it was that just, just the whole, that, that made it feel so contemporary to me was this whole notion of, uh, of the government, uh, sort of, you know, basically encouraging these and or faking, uh, these terrorist attacks in order to keep the people scared so that they can, you know, enact their policies, you know, as they want, as they, you know, enact their preferred policies 
based on this fear that isn't actually real, like, you know, stoking these fears in order to pass certain things that people wouldn't agree to otherwise, you know, yeah. getting people to give up certain freedoms and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I felt a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of synergy with uh, contemporary culture there. And uh, yeah. I mean, you know, so. Weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. <laughs> Well, one thing I wondered about also was like, I think it, at the beginning, the episode, it's because, partly because the, um, the mother character played, I think by Mara Tierney, um, mm-hmm. is so like, so confrontational and in some ways such a caricature of this sort of like, you know, anti-technology, like, like hippie, um, that I thought it was going to be more about like contrasting life in the bubble and, and, and life in, in the city and, and sort of like, what are like the positives and minuses of like giving up this kind of, you know, networked surveillance society. And instead it just became this, no, this is, this is all this technology is bad. It's bad. And like, I think it was effective in that way. And I think in some ways maybe makes a a more, you know, a sharper sort of satirical point. But I, I did feel a little bit of disappointment that maybe the slightly more kind of ambiguous, nuanced story that I thought it was going in didn't really end up happening. Yeah, well, I, I, and I agree with that. I said the exact same thing in our Black Mirror panel about Archangel, mm-hmm. which was a very similar sort of premise. And, and it was the same thing, you know, that there's like, oh, this technology is awful. And yeah, and I, mm-hmm. I started out this one where, where there's, yeah, the disagreement between her mom between the, the girl and her mother. And I was thinking like, oh, this is going to be like what I wanted Archangel to be. It's going to be more of the pluses and minuses of, uh, you know, surveillance, like security versus freedom and so on. And, and then it's like, no, it's just, you know, and now she's, yeah. you know, she, now she's building a bomb, you know? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought they did a really great job of just like of that depicting of that technology though. Like it looks so, it looks so believable. Uh, so yeah. I, I really love, I really love, um, you know, when, when television and movies are able to do something like that. And I, and, and it's kind of interesting. It, it felt very, uh, uh, Philo K. Dickian, um, also just because like in, in like Minority Report, it has really great depictions of that kind of futuristic technology. And then, um, of course, you know, Blade Runner has, has its depictions and everything. I mean, I think Minority Report does a better job of like doing something that looks very, very, very futuristic, but believable. But, and, and so, uh, Safe and Sound does this as well. So, uh, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. That but I, I feel, I mean, Anthony, you can tell me what you think about this, but I feel like that the, actually the Hollywood people deserve the credit for that, not Philip K. Dick. I mean, like, oh, totally. You know, yeah, yeah, like, like in one of the, oh, yeah. what was the story, um, where, where he's taking, he's like commuting to Ganymede and it's just like, like literally there's the highway and he's got <laughs> his like car and, you know, there, there's no, um, you know, no effort to, it's just like, you know, like, just like slapping science fiction labels on 1950s, you know, everyday life. Yeah. I don't remember which one that is, but I, I mean, I think that's yeah. definitely something that he's very like guilty of in, in general. I mean, that like, I think he's like interested in, in sort of Sa- sales, bringing pitch, in... sorry, sales pitch is called. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then like that, like he bring, he likes to bring in like all this crazy stuff, but he, in some ways, like the core science fictional conceit is usually what if 50s families and suburban life, but on Mars, but a hundred years from now, and then this crazy stuff happens, but it like, it starts from this very unscience fictional place in a lot of ways. So, so yeah, I mean, I think I agree that with, with what John was saying about the episode and had this amazing production design, probably the, the only episode that I think in terms of just like its future tech was like, like as interesting as, um, as Black Mirror can be. But, um, mm-hmm. but I think that has nothing to do with Dick. I think that's just, you know, that they did a great job yeah. with the episode. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I don't mean to give uh, Dick uh, credit where no, no credit is due, uh, but it's just bec- it's like it's become a thing. Like, like I mean, I I feel like overall, like I was saying before, how how it felt like the people adapting these episodes or adapting these stories, you know, took the whole Philo K. Dick uh, oeuvre, like including 
not just his fiction, but also the movies and everything that had been adapted. And they sort of had that all in their minds as they were adapting these and or, you know, directing and producing these episodes. Uh, and so it, 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 a lot of these, uh, there's a lot of these different elements from different forms of Philo K. Dick's work, like mostly from, you know, the movies that we've seen, but like sort of get distilled into this, that sort of uh, adds this sort of uh, Dickian aspect to it, even if it's, largely created by Hollywood uh, rather than from his actual fiction. But, um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I just think it's kind of interesting where it's like, it, it's almost like this is like a, a, a postmodern um, <laughs> uh, uh, a way of approaching uh, adaptation where you're like, you're taking in all of these uh, disparate elements that didn't have anything to do with the original and distilling it and pouring it into this uh, this new endeavor. Well, let me say, John, I mean, I think that, like, as I, I think this show is sort of of mixed success to my mind. But one thing I, I did really feel is that the, everyone involved respects Philip K. Dick and was trying to make it good. And there's mm-hmm, even mm-hmm. this, you know, this anthology. Um, if you want to read the stories that the episodes are based on, they put out a little anthology and the people who did the adaptations have a little um, mm-hmm. introduction to each story. And and they they, they just seem to have a lot of, like love for the material and respect for the material. And uh, Anthony mentioned Philip K. Dick's daughter is an, is an executive producer. So this doesn't feel to me like, you know, they're like, oh, we bought the rights to Philip K. Dick's name. Now we're going to put out some shit and put his name on and people, right. you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, no, totally. I think, uh, and like I said, I, I, I believe Brian Cranston was one of the, the key forces in getting this made in. Like, and he, it's like because he's a huge fan of Philip K. Dick. And so I, I think a lot of love went into this. Uh, it's just that, like, yeah, I agree. It's like, it's definitely been a mix, mix, uh, mixed success. Um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, the, so the book you're talking about is called Electric Dreams. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a collection of these 10 stories by Philip K. Dick. Um, it's actually published by Houghton Myth and Harcourt, where, uh, where my imprint is, but, uh, I, it's not part of my imprint, but, um, but, uh, Houghton Myth and Harcourt did publish it. So, so that was kind of a cool discovery. Yeah. And uh, they actually own the rights to all of Philip K. Dick's work. So, um, yeah. And so I, I actually asked my boss, I was like, so how did that book come together? And so it's like, I guess, you know, they, they decided they were doing this, this show. And so, uh, they just said, Hey, well, you know, we control all the rights to the Philip K. Dick story. So how about we do a book, uh, just those stories? And then, you know, got the commentary from the, you know, from the, uh, show creators and everything. So, so that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, is there anything else anyone wants to say about Kill All Others? We sort of touched on that briefly. Um, I feel like there's a lot to talk about in that episode, although I, you know, it wasn't my favorite. But um, so the, the, the premise base, I mean, and, and the, the pre- it actually uses sort of the premise of the story, which basically is that there's like a dead body hanging in public. And you kind of ask people, um, like, what's with that dead body? And everyone's just like, oh, I'm sure it's there for a reason. I'm sure like the authority, <laughs> the authorities are on top of it, you know, and, 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 and capturing really well, I think the sense that we all have, you know, in the modern age right now where, you know, cause it, it's like, I don't know if you've ever like witnessed a crime or something like that, but it takes people a long time to realize something is wrong. Even, you know, if someone like gets shot or something, you know, because you're just so in your routine and it, it, you know, it's, it's really hard for a human being to say like, Oh wait, this is an emergency situation. I need to act differently than I have ever acted before, you know? Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and we sort of are experiencing that sort of phenomenon like as an entire society right now. And, and yeah. the story captures that. Yeah. And I felt like the, the story could, you know, just needed a few things edited out. It was one of those stories that suffered because a, a couple of things were kept in there that, you know, should have, they should have seen were a little too heavy handed, you know, like the, the part where, you know, the, the, all the guys that work in the factory are sort of sitting at a, 
picnic table and you know one of them says you seem sad you should buy something <laughs> and you know it's like really do we really need we've already science fiction has already delved into this problem fairly considerably we really don't need something that just outright says it um and you know it could have been such a more powerful story if they hadn't done that and especially because it to me it it was sort of the most trumpian story like i've been sort of salivating like with you know as we go through this horrible period in in american history i've been waiting for the art response and mm -hmm. uh with with great anticipation because there's going to be a lot like i feel like it's going to take people more time to digest digest everything that's going on but when it happens there's going to be a lot and it's going to be wonderful and some of it's going to be terrible um but mm -hmm. i can't wait so i feel like this was sort of a overtly trumpian tale um but you know it was already so obvious and the, they just threw in a couple of lines in there and a couple of scenes that really you know you don't need to to bang us over the head with it we we get it <laughs> Yeah, you know, when I, I read the description of this one, I, I was really excited by it because I, I thought it sounded like, oh yeah, like, no, that sounds like a, that sounds like a really great, uh, powerful, uh, story. But then, yeah, I don't know, I just, uh, I, I wish it was better. It was just so poorly, uh, poorly done overall that, um, uh, yeah, it's just like, it's just like, like we said earlier, it's like just like hitting us over the head with everything. It's just like so clumsy and everything that it's, it's just like, I can't, I can't really say I enjoyed it overall. And it's like, even though I, I was really rooting for it because of, uh, you know, the different social commentary that, that was embedded in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a weird thing because it, like no one in the episode seems to be acting the way a normal human being would act, especially those coworkers. They get, they almost seem sort of like robotic or like, mm -hmm. And I agree that it doesn't quite work, but like, there's something about, like, it's not, cause again, like knowing, you know, at least seeing, having seen one other movie that the director has, has made, like, I, it seems it was like a very deliberate effect that they were going for. I'm not sure that they got there, but like, I, like, I can't even quite describe it, but it was just like, so unsettling, like while it was happening, it also like kind of led me down some dead ends, like, especially that scene where they were like, oh, you should buy something. And, and I thought, oh, I wonder if like, this is going to go towards more some, some sort of this like kind of like solipsistic kind of story where actually everyone here is like playing him for some reason, um, you know, but like, and it, and it didn't, so it was, I couldn't exactly explain, and like, I couldn't tell you exactly how, you know, what, how the factory stuff relates to the political propaganda stuff, but it was like also kind of like, 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 like we were saying earlier, like just, it felt like I was going crazy as the character was going crazy, that it kind of works for me. Well, and why do you need to call up the sexy butter girl or whatever? Why is it not just, you know, because like, I could understand, it would be interesting if it was like such like a neo-Victorian society or something where sex, like your access to sexual material was so controlled that yeah. the butter girl is like the best you can do. But it didn't seem like that <laughs> sort of society at all. It seems like a total, it, it seems like they would just have like pornography everywhere because like anything that's going to distract people from the, right. um, the political situation, whatever. So yeah, just like, like, like stuff like that, yeah. It was just like, 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 like you're saying, I guess, just sort of like weird elements that didn't, that yeah. were, they weren't like all rowing in the same direction, you know. Right. Well, they probably they probably uh, have uh, repealed net neutrality and they kept it repealed, and, and <laughs> so they just uh, th there's a real premium on porn content. So you know, you can get the you can get the butter girl for free by buying the butter. So, well, that was the know. thing is like if it had been free, it would have made sense. But like the fact that you have to buy the products to get this sort of like yeah. sanitized semi you know soft core porn seems oh. like really unsatisfying 
<laughs> oh well, actually, it wasn't butter; it was cheese. But but you can eat the yes. cheese at least. You know, it's like you uh, you know maybe it's too much cheese. You don't need that much cheese, but you know at least you get the cheese. Right. Or when she comes uh, back, then, she's like, then, "I got a lot of coffee. It's all decaf. Don't worry." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she I, throws it all out. Well, because but I, I thought the wife's situation made a little bit more sense because you know, and, and I thought that would sort of work as satire is that like people have more have a um like a closer emotional connection to Ronald McDonald or Tony the Tiger or something than they do to like actual real people. Yeah, um, right. If they're getting some sort of emotional um, reward out of it, you know, some sort of like fake relationship, but a relationship, but just for like pure sexual titillation or something, it doesn't really make any sense to me. Yeah. Right. And well, the, the fact that it's also emotional makes it like the, that, that initial scene where she's just kind of leaning on him, like it, it, it sort of makes you, it feels believable in the sense that it's this thing where no one is acknowledging that that's what you're getting out of it but you sort of but that's what it is versus like when you get to the cheese girl and she's just like lifting her skirt up you're like yeah everybody knows so like why not just go to like pornography then it's like they were trying really hard to 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 add that campy feel but it doesn't mesh with the rest of the episode all right so uh, we haven't really talked about the father thing I don't know if there's much to say about this. I, I feel like, you know, if you've have if you've seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Puppet Masters, etc., this added absolutely nothing that we haven't seen yeah. a million times before. Yeah, I mean and it seemed like they were I don't know how cynically they were doing this, but in some ways it seemed like a riff also on like a Stranger Things kind of vibe where it's like kids yeah. teaming up. Um except none of the kids were that memorable, so it made it a lot less successful. For me. Yeah, totally. I, I said I said that this was the this was the Stranger Things episode, and like you know, safe safe and sound was the Black Mirror episode. Although I guess Autofact was also kind of Black Mirror episode. Uh, but yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and I was really disappointed to see that this story was the one from FNSF because you know I used to work at FNSF and and I love that magazine. But it's like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, I guess they can't all be winners. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and admittedly, I didn't I didn't read the story. I'm, I I don't expect that it's too great. I mean, based on this premise, but I mean. Um, uh, I like the I like the actor that that, that played the kid, uh, and, and you know of course Greg Kinnear is good. But um, oh, I thought the I thought the woman that plays the wife. I mean, she's a great actress. She's in The Killing, um, and I thought she was like just totally wasted in this episode. It's like they could have cast anyone. Like she she I mean she didn't have anything to work with in this episode. Yeah, she was just sort of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that that was like a waste of of a good actress. Um, so uh, and, and which uh, I, I mean although. The show did a very good, interesting job of casting people. Like, I and mean, there's a lot of like pretty famous people in some of these episodes. Um, so, uh, but they they could have saved her for, for one of the other ones that had maybe less talent in it or something. But um, yeah, well, I agree with you, John, that the kid was really good. And um, I, but I, I think the problem. I mean, Sarah was saying about Crazy Diamonds, like it's a metaphor. I think the problem with this one is that there was no metaphor. Yeah. Like, this is a story about a kid who kills a an alien bug, and it's like it's yeah. not operating on any other level than that. Right, right, right. You know, totally. No, I agree. I, I did not enjoy the episode, but um, yeah, and, except and- for when they break the fourth wall and you know hashtag resist, and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and there's um, nothing emotionally at stake either because he doesn't, there's no sense that his father, his fa- you know, it still has his uh, father's memories, but there's no sense that his father is still in there. He goes immediately from, you know, I love you, dad, to like, what is this crazy alien? So there's nothing like emotionally at stake either. Right. Well, it's also one of those things where I was like, wait, Philip K. Dick had parental trust issues? You don't say. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like, uh, 
Yeah, it seems a little on the nose for him to even write this story. It's like, well, yeah, come on, guy. We know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, uh, was not, was not the, was not the best source material for sure, if that's what the story is about. Uh, all right. Well, I hate to end things on that note, but, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, we've pretty much covered all these episodes at this point, I think. Um, I'll just note that, uh, actually, um, in these uh, in these story notes in this anthology, a lot of these people involved with the show are involved with you know like Stranger Things and mm-hmm. uh, Man in the High Castle and and lots of other you know really great science fiction shows. And uh, the guy oh it's the guy who did Crazy Diamonds. So I don't know how I feel about that, but it's uh, Tony Grissoni <laughs> is currently adapting China Mieville's novel The City in the City into a television series for the BBC. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, so. he's also um, Terry Gilliam's like frequent co-writer, which you know totally makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> oh, and uh, Travis Beecham, who wrote Pacific Rim, uh, he wrote the screenplay for Autofac. Um, so, who who was who was the or which episode had the person from Stranger Things? Uh, I don't remember actually. Oh, okay. I wonder if it was the father thing, <laughs> <laughs> since that was the Stranger Things episode. It's like, hey, we need somebody who knows how to work with kids. <laughs> uh, I wonder if I could find it here. Let's see. Oh, yeah, I, I just turned to it. Jessica Mecklenburg, who wrote oh, her, Human right? Human Is. Um, is... Oh, okay. Ugh. <laughs> Come on. Come on, Jessica. <laughs> I liked that episode. Yeah, I kind of liked it too. Yeah, I mean, I think like the it, you know, the conceit is it's kind of obvious where it's going, but like I think it like the the performances are so good that like I totally bought it. And when we say it's not just Brian Cranston, but it's also the the actress from the Babadook mm-hmm. who plays his wife and I think she's amazing in it too. Yeah. Although I, I found the ending a little implausible that they're just going to let that guy. They're like, "Oh, I'm convinced he's not an alien." So <laughs> <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. That 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 required a little bit of suspension of disbelief, um, but actually, let me say, I mean, I'm just, you know, I don't know if you guys have read Chinese Mieville's City in the City, but that's an incredibly original, interesting premise, unlike anything mm-hmm. that's ever been on television before. So uh, I'd be really interested to see how that how that turns out. Well, and seeing it visually, I think is going to be such a different experience from reading it. That, like, yeah, I, I'm just as curious. So, well, Anthony, um, actually, uh, since you're, uh, a bit of an expert, well, I guess Dave, you read, you've read all of his stories, you said. So, I mean, of things that have not already been adapted, like, do you have any ideas for, like, what season two they should target? Like, uh, you know, since we were sort of questioning the, the decisions to adapt some of these that they picked in season one? Well, see, um, obvious. Uh, well, well, Anthony mentioned the electric ant. That definitely stands right. out in my mind. Um, but the thing with Philip K. Dick stories, like, to me, they're like, um, you know, it's like Mike and Ike candies or something where, you know, you eat any individual one. It's like, yeah, this is all right. But then you, <laughs> you eat like, you're like you, you, st- you eat a couple and then you're like, oh, I can't stop this. And you eat the whole box. You know, I can't help <laughs> um, and then afterward, like, you don't re- particularly remember, like, no particular story stands out in your mind. It's just this overall effect of like, wow, that was weird. And I just got bombarded with so many crazy, cool ideas. And mm. I it captures this like paranoid worldview so well. I mean, that was one thing rereading these stories that, that struck me is just how, like if, if I were to write this as a writer and I wanted to capture this sense of paranoia, I don't think I could possibly do it. I mean, I don't think you can fake the level of paranoia that's in these stories and it just Mm -hmm. comes through so clearly. Yeah. That's another reason why it's so disappointing. I think uh, as a female science fiction fan, because the, the problem with, I, I do not understand why 
PKD had such a wonderful imagination, and whether that imagination was fueled by paranoia or not, regardless, he had a really cool grasp of looking, being able to look at the world and, and ask, is any of this real? And, and the fact that he can't or he couldn't apply that to gender, that he couldn't apply that, because it really is just a failure of an imagination, you know, to, to be able to look around at the world and say, all of this could be completely different, except women will still be women. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like the, the fact that, that, that he, he couldn't apply all of that imagination to, you know, and, and he, he had a really troubled, I mean, he was married four times. So you'd think yeah, that I he think would be able times. to delve five times so you think he'd be able to delve and use those skills and delve into the question of wait why why do i suck at this why 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 do these things keep happening and actually question it the same way that he's questioning everything else you know it's just it's just a disappointment yeah probably probably became convinced that each of his wives was actually an android at some point or an alien (laughs) and then he just he couldn't love them after that there you go (laughs) i i would say like i mean i think that's what i was trying to get at earlier is i i do think that what he's imaginative about and um, is not in some ways the, the kind of things that we necessarily think that science fiction writers are going to be imaginative. I think in a lot of ways he thought people are people, society is going to be the same, or at least that's how he wrote it, that it was just like, you know, and, and that all that stuff is the same. And then there's this crazy stuff externally. So I think that, that his failure, I mean, I, to um, to sort of imagine new roles for women, um, I think is, is an extent is not to like excuse that failure, but I think it, it it's to say that it's not that he was actually so imaginative in so other ways. I think his the way he describes like the father figures in a lot of his stories is also like reflective of like feels very much of the fifties. Um, yeah. And again, that doesn't mean that it's not disappointing, but I, I think that's part of what's going on there. I would also say that I've I've heard that um, one of his last novels, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, is where he like somebody finally sat him down and said, "Listen." We got to talk about your attitude towards women, and like he finally like tried to like make make up for it. I, I actually haven't read it, um, but but I've heard that that's where he actually does a tiny, you know, one percent of like trying to redeem himself from a lot of unimaginative writing about women. Well, I mean, one of his novels I haven't re- read it since college, but it's called "Flow My Tears." The policeman said, and there's sort of, from what I remember, a sort of proto cyberpunk hacker female character in that. Who I don't I don't know I I won't testify that she's a great character but she's at least not a um, hot secretary or nagging wife. <laughs> um, but 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 to Sarah's point too, um, some lines from this anthology jumped out at me. So one is Sally swept breathlessly into the living room, her breasts quivering with excitement. Oh God! And uh, June Walton caught the uneasy tone in her son's voice, and her matronly bosoms fluttered with sudden alarm. Uh. <laughs> And I was actually the first of the, I was reading the story out loud and my girlfriend was kind of working and listening. And like, literally after reading that line, I don't think she heard anything else in the story. She was like, so like, couldn't like stop laughing about that. Like, (laughs) cringe. Classic. Yeah, actually, uh, you, you were you mentioned uh, "Flow My Tears." The policeman said, uh, and actually, is, didn't didn't isn't that in Crazy Diamond? Don't don't uh, didn't uh, Steve Buscemi isn't he singing that like as his passcode thing or whatever? Is that the yeah? yeah he's are. singing "Flow My Tears" something or other. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. and it's exactly what you're talking about, John. Where it's like they um, they like even when they like departed a lot from the source material, they wanted to have mm-hmm. PKD type elements in the stories, yeah. um, and so I thought that was kind of a funny joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I guess it's like a, um, you know, it's just an old song that 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 phrase comes from. Um, but uh, but like, if you know Philip K. Dick's work, then you know, obviously, like you said, that 
that novel is called that. So yeah, that was kind of a wink to fans. I just want to add one other. I have an, one other note here. I want to mention is that in Impossible Planet, there's some line about oh, we've explored every star in the universe, and there's just no more mm. mysteries anymore. <laughs> and that just seems like such a yeah, like <laughs> like failure to understand what science fiction is all about to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, especially since this only seems to be maybe a hundred or two hundred years in the future or something. You know, like yeah. even if it was a hundred million years in the future, that's still a preposterous statement. But uh, right, it's just just like. <laughs> Like the it's, it's it's yeah it's just like the, the you you're, you're really missing the point you can't conceive of what the universe is and what science fiction is actually supposed to grapple with you know yeah mm -hmm. other than that I like the show a lot <laughs> <laughs> um but we're pretty much out of time and I know Anthony has a phone call he has to take anybody have any uh, any other final thoughts any uh, anything else you didn't get to mention. I guess the last thing I wanted to say, and just in terms of comparing it to, to the written work, is I do think that, again, particularly when you look at the, the novels from the 60s on, like, there's like the paranoia that Philip Dick is really known for, but I think he's capable of a, a lot of other things. And I think part of that is, is like this very specific kind of tone, which is this mixture of like resignation and hope, which you would get in like Ubik or, um, the, you know, parts of The Man in the High Castle or Martian Time Slip or The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch and, you know, on and on, most of the famous novels have it. And I think that part of his writing is only barely captured in the show, like occasionally. So I think like as much as I, I think I like the show maybe more than some of the other people on here, here did, but like, I still feel like it only captured a tiny part of who he is as a writer. Well, you know, in one of the story notes, I think it was the Travis Beecham one. I'm not sure, but the, the person says basically that Philip K. Dick was always writing capital L literature. You know, he was always interested in ideas and philosophy. He was always thinking hard and, you know, writing from his heart and trying to understand the world and understand himself and, and everything. And, and that, yeah, I, I wish the, I wish these t TV episodes did a little bit better job of capturing that. Um, I mean, I, th I think they were definitely trying, but, but yeah, is that the reason people like Philip K. Dick is because of how hard he thought and how much he questioned about everything around him. Uh, except, with, except with, with some, no <laughs> with, with some notable exceptions. Um, all right, cool. So uh, any other final thoughts? Uh, I'll, I'll just say, uh, aside from, uh, I recommend episodes two, five and six. So you should definitely watch those. I, Although I can't really recommend the show overall otherwise, I really want it to succeed because I want more anthology shows to happen. So if you have Amazon Prime, just at least play every episode, <laughs> even, if you're gonna, even if you're gonna walk out of the room and not watch it. Like, we gotta track those downloads, those streams. They gotta, they gotta think that we're all watching it so that they think it's very popular. And then go rate it on Amazon. Give it five stars. I don't care if I, I don't care if you don't like it. I, I didn't like it that much and I'm gonna give it five stars, goddammit. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm okay, but I would I would watch a hundred of these easily. All right, so yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. Go uh, post fraudulent five star reviews on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Anthony Ha. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Anthony Ha for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to David McNamara and Arturo Sanchez, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. 
So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to George Turcotte, who just signed up to make monthly payments via PayPal, and to Greg Poyer, who just made a very generous one-time contribution. Greg writes, Best recommendation is to tell you I listened to over a dozen podcasts, and yours is the only donation I've made. After listening for more than two years, this seems a pittance, but the best I can do at this time. So big thanks again to David, Arturo, George, and Greg, and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Serial Box for sponsoring today's show. Check out their Urban Fantasy Series book burners, and remember that you can get a discount on the first season of any Serial Box series by visiting SerialBox.com and using the promo code GEEK18. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.